Hey, everybody. I'm excited to share this conversation about ambiguous utopias with perhaps the writer most associated with utopian literature in English today, Kim Stanley Robinson. Much like the conversations with Karen Joy Fowler and Isaac Yuen felt like a pair of conversations looking at the question of the non-human other here on Earth, plants and animals, in very different ways. And Molly Gloss and Becky Chambers, the most improbable of pairings, and in one looking at how Le Guin operates and finds meaning on the level of the sentence, and the other doing the same with cultures in outer reaches of space. Today's conversation with Robinson and last month's with Adrian Marie Brown feel again like a pairing, a pairing around questions of social justice, of problem solving our way to a desirable, just, and inhabitable future. And yet, like all these pairings, they are radically different from each other as conversations. Now that we're at the midpoint, the sixth episode of this series in 2022, we could also look at today's conversation as connected in a different way to those with Molly Gloss and Karen Joy Fowler, as all three of these writers knew Le Guin over the course of many decades, and each have very personal stories to share, not only of their encounter with her work, but of being with her in the world. Even though today's conversation is about ambiguous utopias, we also create space for some really incredible anecdotes that Robinson shares with us, at first as Ursula's student in the 70s, and later as fellow writers in the world. I won't say more, but what I will say before we begin is that crafting with Ursula is a labor of love, one that couldn't have happened without a number of people's help, all of whom I thank at the end of the show, but also because of you, the listener, who enjoys and values these conversations. If you're enjoying the series and you aren't yet a supporter of the show, head over to the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash between the covers to check out the possible rewards of doing so beyond the satisfaction of helping ensure the future of the show itself going forward. There are many Ursula-centric things, from the Locus Award-winning Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing to the Le Guin Tribute Anthology, Dispatches from Anaris, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to the bonus audio archive, with readings from everyone from Carmen Maria Machado and N.K. Jemison to Ted Chang and Daniel Jose Older. Check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for the sixth episode of Crafting with Ursula, with none other than Kim Stanley Robinson. The connection between what I do as a writer, make, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. Obviously, to me, words do make magic, in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after, ultimately, is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot, or a sculptor carving a statue. 
Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as, as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest is one of our most prominent contemporary science fiction writers, and perhaps the one most associated with questions of utopia in relation to solving our impending climate disaster, the writer Kim Stanley Robinson. Robinson has a master's degree in English from Boston University and a doctorate in English from the University of California, San Diego, where he studied under the literary critic and Marxist political theorist Frederick Jameson, writing his dissertation under Jameson's guidance on Philip K. Dick. Ursula K. Le Guin also came to the university in the 70s as a guest lecturer, and that is where he became her student for two classes at the time, one a workshop and the other a class on science fiction. Robinson has cited his three principal influences as Jameson, Le Guin, and the ecological poet Gary Snyder. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of over 20 works of fiction, novels that often engage with questions of nature and culture, of economic and social justice, climate change and global warming, and how to pragmatically problem-solve our way to a livable future. Speculative narratives that increasingly use real-life timelines around the risks of a global mass extinction event or crossing the point of no return around an untenable rise in temperature, and speculative narratives that use the real-life constraints of our capabilities technologically as he imagines truly possible future solutions for our contemporary problems. Publishing since the 1980s, Robinson has won the World Fantasy Award, many Nebula and Hugo Awards, the British Science Fiction Award, and recently for his body of work to date, both the Robert A. Heinlein Award and the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Imagination in Service to Society. His books include the three Californias trilogy, The Wild Shore, The Gulf Coast, and Pacific Edge, which imagine three very different futures for California. The Mars trilogy, about the settlement and terraforming of Mars. Shaman, set during the Ice Age, and telling the story of early modern humans in Europe through the eyes of a shaman in training who must learn the skills to survive and aid his people. Aurora, which explores the challenges and limitations of imagining life aboard an intergenerational starship. New York 2140, set in a near-future, flooded New York City. And most recently, The Ministry for the Future, a book that some have called utopian because it portrays a society that is changing to address its shortcomings, and which is a significant addition to hard science fiction and climate literature as it emphasizes an accurate portrayal of technology and climate science as it tries to portray these societal changes for the better. And yet Bill McKibben said in the New York Review of Books that the Ministry for the Future is not utopian. It is anti-dystopian, realist to the core. Either way, it is a book that has struck a chord. Jonathan Lethem calls it the best science fiction book he has ever read. 
Ezra Klein said, if I could get policymakers and citizens everywhere to read just one book this year, it would be Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future. And President Barack Obama picked it as one of his favorite reads of 2020. But not only are world leaders reading The Ministry for the Future, scientists and policymakers have reached out to the author, and Robinson finds himself not only speaking to a wide variety of audiences— literary, political, scientific, and otherwise. But he was also granted access to the inner workings and real-time scientific and policy conversations of COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow in 2021, where many of the diplomats there had read his book. So it's a great honor and a pleasure to welcome Kim Stanley Robinson to Crafting with Ursula. Thanks for that, David. Um... A great introduction, and uh, as you were doing it, I was, I was pondering Ursula and how she would, um, how she would think of that, and um, what she would say, uh, the impact she had on me, and all of that happening. So um, it's a pleasure to be on the uh, 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 to talk with you about her. Well, before we talk about our topic of ambiguous utopias, let's just spend a minute. I know you've you've given entire talks on Le Guin. Um, but give us a hint around your first relationship to her writing and also you and her in the world, a little taste of, of the two of you and your intersections both within books and thinking and, and actually out in the world at large. Sure, my pleasure. Um, well, I ran into science fiction a little late compared to a lot of science fiction people. I was leaving for college, really. And in high school, I'd been a mystery reader. So I, I was catching up fast in my first couple years of undergraduate studies, so really doing more science fiction than anything else. Uh, and I ran into Planet of Exile and uh, Rockanon's world uh, just as reading everything, and especially Ace, the paperbacks. And those were special and struck me and I began to hunt around and I ran quickly into left-handed darkness, which blew my mind. And then I'm not unusual in that, as you know, but this was seemed to me one of the best science fiction novels ever written and a, and a real mark of what could be done with science fiction that was distinct from literary fiction by way of its thought experiment and its, um, you know, poetical qualities, the romance instead of domestic realism. So I was a big fan, and uh, and the dispossessed struck me as the great political uh, novel. Uh, really, I've said this before, but utopias are blueprints. Novels are soap operas. You combine them to the utopian novel, you have a weird form. But the dispossessed uh, showed how that works, and was a big impact on me. So all that was cruising along fine. Uh, Jameson, my teacher at UCSD, he he suggested I do my studies on Philip K. Dick, and, and there were many reasons for that. Um, Dick is, it, it was at the time more messy, complicated. There was more to say, less attention had been paid to him compared to Le Guin at that point. This is the mid seventies. And I'm glad I did that too, but um, as wonderful as Phil Dick's work is, on the whole, he he's nowhere near the poet 
he's not a, a as good at characterization or at the line, the the clean line, as you talked about with Molly Gloss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, she was a model and I was stumbling along and then suddenly she got invited to UCSD at a moment when I wasn't really happy to be back at UCSD. This is graduate school. So that was a kind of redemption moment. Like, okay, I'm stupid. I came back to my undergraduate school to go to graduate school. I'm frustrated, bored, uh, feeling like I made a gigantic mistake. And suddenly Le Guin's coming to UCSD to teach. And I was thinking, okay, maybe it's not such a bad move after all. <laughs> so um, she came and she was there for a month. And I, it's not quite that I pestered her, but she knew perfectly well that she had a science fiction person there. I had already been to Clarion. She had taught Clarion. She knew where I was in my career and in my mind. And um, she had other writers that she was as interested in or more interested in than me, because I was a known quantity. But she was also teaching Luis Alberto Urea Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of people that we've not heard of ever since who were doing what you might call Raymond Carver realism, short stories that women she was interested in. I feel she was always much more intent to help young women writers than young men writers because she felt like they needed it more and that she could do more for them and she cared more and all that made sense to me. So I don't want to make claims that we were super extra close at that time, but um, she was a kindly person and she read all of the stories I'd written up to that moment, made comments on all of them, um, liked my story Ridge Running the Best, which was indeed a kind of a realist story about backpacking. And that was a big push for me in that direction in my own work. And at that point, um, we parted ways. We kept in touch by letters. And I loved her letters. Um, They were witty and funny, goofball. Um, She had such a goofball sense of humor and and, um, unpretentious and, and only occasional. But she read my work. This is something that I'm now more impressed by than ever. And not all of my books, and her blurb for The Wild Shore is, is distinctly um, cool, you might say. It's not, she's not raving in that blurb. I was a little pained by it. Uh, but she did the job. She provided a blurb. Um, there's a fresh wind blowing in The Wild Shore, um, which is, you know, nice enough. But when she, <laughs> she read the Mars Trilogy... And she read The Years of Rice and Salt, and she read Shaman, and a couple of other through the years. And I, of course, was always reading her. And she really liked, um, uh, well, she was complimentary of all these, but I could tell that she truly liked Years of Rice and Salt and Shaman. So after a while, when I would go through Portland um, to try to bring this story of me and Ursula to a quick close, I would visit with her. Uh, Sometimes at her house, sometimes at a restaurant around Portland, sometimes with Molly Gloss with us, sometimes just her and me, sometimes with Charles. Um, And and it was that kind of um, friendly colleague, but also she had once been my teacher and was proud of me as a student who had made good. Uh, And I stayed in touch in that regard. But then I did a smart thing. It must have been 2013, I said, I need to see all these writers who are so important to me. Um, You know, life doesn't go on forever. So I made an arrangement such that one day I flew to Chicago, gave a talk at the AAAS meeting, flew to Portland and stayed at a hotel. Next morning, 
I had lunch with Charles and Ursula, drove Ursula down to Oregon State in Corvallis through a pouring rain. And then she and I did an event together that night. And that's on YouTube. YouTube doesn't quite capture it. There were 800 wet Oregonians, Le Guin people, you know, in plaids in Corvallis where moss grows on people. And um, they were thrilled to be there with her. And I was kind of her um, interlocutor. But we had worked this event out in advance in great detail. She was really a pro and she wanted to do this. And we read from each other's work. So we did five minutes of me, five minutes of her. We went back and forth like that six times. I think we filled a whole hour of readings. And one of those back and forths, I read a, a several of her poems. And in her reading me, she chose the uh, passage in Shaman where the old shaman Thorn is dying and telling the young shaman how to go on. Uh, I could not have read that passage myself to an audience. And she was as uh, hard as nails in reading this passage. It was a tremendous reading and it, my, my hair was standing up. It was, uh, well, it was one of the great moments in my career, but it was also a very great moment in our friendship because she'd chosen that passage and read it. So uh, that was pretty much our last contact. We had a couple letters after that. Uh, and in fact, I might even, no, I think that's the last time I saw her, a couple letters after that, and then um, she passed away. So that's my story of me and Ursula. And I must say, it's been a, a beautiful friendship. She was quite a, um, a, a spiky person. I mean, there's several times I can remember where she skewered me like a, <laughs> like, a like a spear fisherman spearing a, a fish. <laughs> if I was to say something stupid or uh, if she was just flatly even to disagree with me. Um, but we had a lot of laughs on those drives down to Corvallis and the drive back because she didn't drive. And so she told me she could get me from Corvallis to Portland on back roads, which she absolutely could not. So we just wandered. But we were laughing our heads off trading Virginia Woolf stories and science fiction stories, uh, gossip about the community. Um, it's, it's kind of great that my best interaction with Ursula was that final one. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll point people to that video of that event because it is great, even if it isn't capturing it at all. It, it captures a lot. Um, well, I, wanna, I want to um, speak to an essay you wrote about utopias in the Nation magazine. In, in that magazine, you call The Dispossessed the first great utopian novel. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time about what makes it so. But before we do, I was hoping maybe we could just take a step or two back and just briefly touch on the, the history of utopian fiction. So um, Sir Thomas More is the person who coined the term in the six, 16th century, and the word means literally no place or nowhere, that an utopia is not a place, but rather a notion of the imagination. And you've talked before in, in other talks about how Marx and Engels critiqued this form of utopian discourse the idea of a perfected state outside of history, perhaps at the end of history. Um, and they critiqued it as an escapist fantasy, one that doesn't engage with a praxis of real change. And in that same talk, you, you argue that H.G. Wells, with his persistent writing of utopias during the darkest days of the 20th century, 
was the one who brought utopian thought into history and history making. And I guess I wanted I wanted to spend just one beat with that, what what that means and and maybe use Wells as a as a a bridge between Moore and Le Guin and then talk about Le Guin. Sure. You could say that all utopias are novels, but they have peculiar forms and contents because the novel is so capacious. But on the other hand, Moore's book comes from 1515, and there are all kinds of um, writing that are not really the novel. And we sort of think of the novel as coming together with uh, Cervantes and, and um, Defoe and you know the rise of the novel. I'm convinced by that, that something new came out of the, the British 18th century, and in particular Defoe, who is a great novelist. So the utopia is kind of a different thing, um, a prose narrative that describes, uh, maybe it's expository writing, describes a political scenario, including, you know, this is how our sewage system works, and this is how our, our plumbing works, and this is how our taxes work, and this is what we use instead of gold, and a tour through the zoo, as Damon Knight used to call it, and it not necessarily having much in the way of characters or plots. They, in a way, they kind of do because they're chronological in their narratives, but they are certainly uh, unsatisfying as plots and usually incredibly skeletal as characters. So, but then when you decide that you're going to take the apparatus of the novel and use it to explore a utopian space and a better political order, um, that quickly begins to happen. And you see efforts that are variously convincing or fun to read. Uh, Edward Bellamy's Looking Back from the Year 2000, William Morris's News from Nowhere, that's pretty good. William Henry Hudson, The Crystal Age, very, um, reactionary. These were often in reactions to industrialism, where uh, the idea that things would be better if we'd only go back to the old ways. Uh, pastorals. Hudson and Morris were very much like that. Bellamy, not so much. He was looking forward to socialism. And when Wells came along and wrote A Modern Utopia in 1905, he was specifically playing off of more, but telling a story. He had already done his five great uh, short science fiction novels. And when he wrote his Utopia, he didn't want it to be exactly just a tour through the zoo, but something with some plot, like, can I stay there? Do I have to go back? The, is this Utopia under danger? Some obvious plot um, problems can be uh, uh, introduced into the story to make it more interesting. And you get Robert Graves, another pastoral seven days in New Crete, and you get... Um, Huxley's Island of 1959. These are novels, but they're just, um, the bones are showing through that in a rather skeletal and uns unsatisfying novel is being written around the story of the good society. And everything's all clunking along in an unsatisfactory way, like uh, trying to match blueprints and soap operas. They aren't mixing very well. And then the dispossessed comes in and really it's head and shoulders better than any other utopian novel written up to its time. It's one of her best novels and Le Guin's a great novelist. And it's also a super interesting uh, contemplation of different political economies. It's a compare contrast essay, which is one of her tricks to make it interesting as a novel. Two societies, one capitalist, one 
um, uh, anarcho-syndicalist or whatever is going on on an RS. Uh, and they're both in crisis and they're both in interaction. She's got a hell of a plot there and some really interesting characters in her usual way because she was very deft at quickly giving you a character that you believed in. And Shevek is one of her great characters. So this is, um, I think it's a real moment in literary history, the, the dispossessed. And I don't think that'll ever go away. There's, in fact, there's seldom since been a utopian novel as good as The Dispossessed. So it's still kind of head and shoulders, something that you get to point at. Well, we, we decided to use as a title to talk under today, not utopias, but ambiguous utopias. And while this is the subtitle of The Dispossessed, The Dispossessed, An Ambiguous Utopia, you and I never talked about what that word ambiguous is doing. And so... I was wondering what you think Le Guin is, is pointing to by putting the term ambiguous in or what it means to you that you would want our discussion, which is going to be about your work and her work, um, why we would call it ambiguous utopias rather than utopias. I think she was doing it to make um, the reader immediately perk up and say, ask certain questions while reading the, the text in advance. Um, does Le Guin believe in this society as a better one? Uh, what is ambiguity? What is utopia? Um, it, with any kind of background in Le Guin at all, you're thinking of Taoism, the yin and the yang, the balance between light and dark forces, um, You know, the left hand of darkness, the right hand of light. You Ambiguity is a how can I say it? It's a, it's a vaguer word than the Tao. It's not saying a dual utopia. It's not saying a utopia of two differing parts that mesh together nicely. Ambiguity, it's, I think Le Guin did not regard herself as a political thinker. She was interested, but modest. She was um, um, a moderate in her radicalism. In other words, whatever worked best, one had to be good to people. Nonviolence was important. She was sometimes called a liberal. She took that on with pride and said, if that's what I am, then it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, she took this on as, an, as a humanist and a novelist in a tradition that was kind of American West Coast left-wing, intellectual, IWW, um, anti-New York, anti-extremism. And in all those uh, mix of thoughts, she just wanted to tell one story rather than take one position. Because in The Dispossessed, you cannot, you cannot pull out of The Dispossessed a model of a society that would work really well, mm -hmm. which is funny because, and that's another ambiguity. Okay, this is a utopia, but what she means, I think, is I'm writing a utopian novel here, and therefore it will have the messiness and indeterminacy and ambiguity of a novel. So she comes to this as a very, very well-educated English major. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think she was technically a French major, but man, she knew the canon backward and forward, um, like an English major ought to. Yeah. 
Well, other people have commented on this insertion of the word ambiguous in the title. For instance, Joe Walton said, Anaris, which is the anarchist rebel moon, could so easily be irritatingly perfect, but it isn't. There are droughts and famines, petty bureaucrats, and growing centralization of power. And Samuel Delaney suggests that the term ambiguous utopia is not meant to apply to Anaris in particular, that both the peoples of Eurus and Anaris mistakenly believe they're living in an utopia, that Le Guin is questioning the notion of utopic visions altogether. Uh, and he says, it's only by problematizing the utopian notion, by rendering its hard, hard perimeters somehow permeable, even undecidable, that you make it yield anything interesting. And I guess I wanted to take this notion of hard perimeters becoming permeable or undecidable into both of your works. In some talks, you've portrayed the modern novel as arising as a bourgeois form. And the Marxist critic Franco Moretti, like you, argues that the way the modern novel arose with 17th century industrial capitalism, it increasingly played a role in the representation and creation of the bourgeois identity, out of which arose the quote-unquote realist novel, often shaped around the actions of or consciousness of a single actor. But to return to Delaney's idea of rendering hard perimeters permeable, it seems like formally speaking, both you and Le Guin try to do this with the novel, make it undecidable, um, perhaps troubling the idea that a novel should be shaped around an individual hero or protagonist, but also around the novel as form. Um, not only in Le Guin's case by adding ambiguous into the title um, and into its animating questions, but when I think of her other utopian novel, Always Coming Home, it dispenses with the single narrative altogether, giving us whole books within it, parts of books within it, poetry, recipes, songs, in a polyvocal, loosely cohering book, which, if it's a novel, is either a new kind of novel or a return to maybe a pre-modern version of a novel. But I also think of the Ministry for the Future as perhaps in that spirit in some regards. While it's a book which tries to problem-solve a real near-future global solution to our very real impending mass extinction event, um, you say it's intentionally, quote-unquote, a mess, that it isn't a blueprint or a guide. But we could say that you are calling it a that when you're calling it a mess, it's really something decentering the single protagonist. It's a polyvocal book, but also one that switches modes. We get firsthand accounts and testimonials. We get notes from meetings. Um, and it also dramatizes a, a, a really wide variety of tactics and strategies to erode capitalism. So ones that may even be or are often in contradiction to each other, banking and commerce solutions, structural and organizational ones, eco-sabotage. So I guess I was hoping you could talk to us about ministry in light of what we've been talking about regarding utopias and novels, utopian novels, and then ambiguity uh, and undecidable perimeters. Sure. I will try to make a... Um, a voyage through that that starts with the idea that yes the novel is a way for 
the new bourgeois, the middle class, the the subject of capitalism that is uh, didn't exist in feudalism uh, very much to self-identify and understand what they mean and who they are and what how they should act. So you have the endless love letters of Samuel Richardson and Fielding already making fun of it. And you have to understand that instantaneously, like within the first 30 years of the novel, um, it became self-reflexive and began, began to make fun of itself for this very project, like in Tristram Shandy. Um, so it, it, it's remarkable the, the efflorescent efflorescence of of game playing in the novel and of self-reflection on what the novel's doing right in the start in the English novel and then you get an almost immediate high point that's seldom if ever been matched in Jane Austen what do you do how do you care for others what's the definition of love what should you want and how do you think this is all the what the novel is up to but when you add utopia you're then talking about the social form and an interesting question immediately pops up in a different kind of society. Would you be a different kind of individual, even if you had the same DNA you're born into a different to the same parents, even, but you're in a different kind of society. What kind of values would you have? What would you regard to be important? How would you live your life? How would you spend your time? All these questions come up in the utopian novel by the addition of a thought experiment. Let's put same person, because we are the people that we are and we have grown up in, in a capitalist society. But imagine that you were brought up in an anarchist society. Uh, how would you feel about things? What would you do when you saw a fight in the street? You can see Le Guin running through the various situations that are questionable that might be different if you'd been brought up in a different kind of society. So Dispossessed is a, formerly is the same kind of a novel as an ordinary novel. It has a protagonist. It has secondary characters and minor characters. And um, it's, a, it's a sort of Bildungsroman for um, a scientist within this alternative society. And in that sense, it, it's the same as a Flaubert novel. It's like sentimental education. Now, um, Delaney's essay on the dispossessed is quite poor. It's one of his weakest efforts. It looks um, envious and, 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 and whiny. Um, and, it, and it takes parts of the dispossessed and complains at huge length about them that are trivial and unimportant and maybe even wrong on Delaney's part to complain about. Anybody can take a novel, any novel, and tear it up by focusing on things that they want to complain about. And that's not typical of Delaney, who's much more generous. And I would say that in that period of years that um, there was a not so hidden battle for being the greatest science fiction writer working in America at the time between those two. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Le Guin understood it as such. And her response in that particular um, moment was simply silence. She never wrote about Delaney. She, she left him off the table of people that she would read or teach, like in the class she taught to us. Um, it would make perfect sense to have a Delaney title amongst the rest that she taught, being they're both what I call new wave writers, uh, because everybody writing between 1965 and 75 was a new wave writer. It's a name for a period, not the name for a style or a choice. You were writing those years. You could be Poole Anderson. You could be Jack Vance. 
uh, political right-wingers and, and old-style writers, John Brunner, uh, Silverberg, Ellison, these are writers from the 50s, but from 65 to 75, they were as new wave as anyone else. But Le Guin and Delaney were two of the uh, top of the game. Um, and Le Guin had other rivalries going on with Joanna Russ. Mm -hmm. um, who's the greatest feminist science fiction writer? Well, when you've got Joanna Russ on the field, then you've got a problem. And... Um, <laughs> If you're regarding it as a competition, then you're dealing with a kind of a genius. But um, Le Guin, without thinking of herself as a genius, um, knew that she had a gift and a power, capacious, um, broad-minded. There was something over the long haul she knew that in the long run, she was going to put up a body of work that was going to be the equal of anybody. So um, the, the, the overly uh, uh, signaling, feminist signaling works of Le Guin in the late 70s kind of dissipated later on as that particular um, literary competition died down. So back to Delaney, his book, Triton, an ambiguous heterotopia. Yes. That's, that's the real response to The Dispossessed. It's a good novel. It's an excellent novel. And it's, a, and it's a bouncing off ideas in The Dispossessed in productive, positive ways. Uh, so you, someone writes a novel, you got some problems with it. You write another novel that is just as good, at, but, well, almost as good, you might say, and just as interesting to add to the conversation. That's the proper response, not a whiny, uh, crabby, complaining essay. Um, so then to follow up the, the strands of your thought, Always Coming Home then is not a standard novel. It's how do you write a novel that's actually about the collective uh, rather than an individual protagonist? Well, it's hard. You immediately mess up what the novel does best. Readers don't like it. It, it, it uh, warps the, the plot, the, the sense of characters, the structure. But it can be interesting. And certainly Dos Passos in his USA trilogy showed that it could also be great. Always Coming Home, to my mind, is not great. Um, and I think that it is some, I won't identify who, some, a friend of mine said, um, it's like the Dune Encyclopedia, which existed at the time, without Dune. Well, this is telling. You need Dune before the Dune Encyclopedia is of any interest. And in Always Coming Home, the strand that is uh, stone telling, uh, a series of, uh, of novellas and novelettes that gives you a uh, little thread of protagonicity running through the narrative to try to put the encyclopedia, to give the encyclopedia a little plot stranding through it, it wasn't enough. And it's maybe a matter of ratios. And believe me, I would not say this if Ursula is still alive because she would kill me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I say this hoping her ghost doesn't uh, come and kill me. Um, but it's but whatever. Um, I, I kept my mouth shut whilst she was alive. I certainly would never uh, have wanted to irritate her. And I know that book meant a lot to her, but I feel like it was a warning track Homer, as we say in baseball. Uh, and she changed her tactics. So you get the birthday of the world, you get all of the um, collections of novellas that the heinous work that follows always coming home is her um, coming back to the problem of the novel of the collective that is about a utopian or a good society. Mm. 
And there are gems scattered left, right, and center. She returned to the standard fictional forms at which she is so good. At novellas, she's a master, as everybody uh, recognizes, I think. And the short story. Really, she's good in all forms. But um, what you can see with her as a utopian writer is after the um, disappointing experience of always coming home, of pulling back into more normal fictional forms and then just concentrating on a, on a different content rather than an experimental form and having huge successes all across the board. And then lastly for me, well, I took some lessons, Ministry for the Future. I wanted it to be um, a mess, a grab bag, feel like history itself. But I really focused on Mary and Frank and their weird relationship they come back almost every third chapter. Uh, the, I, it had to be not a thread of narrative, but a spine of narrative. It had to be thicker and solider and more involving so that the reader, if you have a, a chapter that's about Bretton Woods or a chapter that's about uh, um, pulling water out from under glaciers and all the, the grab bag of topics that come up in Ministry for the Future, you know that within two chapters, you're going to be back to either Mary or Frank and something hopefully interesting and certainly for sure strange is going on between those two characters in their life history and their and their relationship. So I would say that I attended to, I mean, I have my own relationship to my own novels, but in terms of paying attention to how do you do the novel of the collective, how do you do the utopian novel, it, it, it's, a, it's definitely true that, that checking in on what Le Guin did and seeing her successes and her, and her not successes was a, uh, important to me. Well, there is a certain irony with the Ministry for the Future that you're held up and this book in particular is held up as utopian um, because the utopian future or the so-called utopian future is simply one where we escape a mass extinction event. You're not portraying a, um, a harmonious future uh, where our problems have been solved. But I guess I shouldn't say it simply has, we've simply escaped the mass extinction event. Because on the one hand, it feels like a low bar for your utopia to, to um, say that this is utopian to escape the mass extinction event. But on the other hand, I think it is telling about where we're at and where society is at, that that's how we frame uh, an utopian novel now, that we do come together and we do avert the mass extinction event, that that is seemingly feeling like, um, if not utopian, um, you know, hopeful, I guess, would be maybe the right word, but um, that you're enacting uh things that we really could do on real timelines to actually be living and, and endure enduring into the future um, in a way that um, we could, we could continue to thrive as a species. I recognize what you're saying in that I have said this before, the bar is really low now because we're in such a desperately dangerous situation we're only just a few years away from blowing through some planetary boundaries that um, future people will not have the technological power, the physical power to bring us back from. And the name for that is mass extinction event or biosphere breakdown. And uh, dodging that would be a huge victory. And also if you think of history, I have a, a friend here 
at um, UC Davis, a philosopher of science named James Griesmer, and he talks about scaffolding theory, that a generation builds a scaffold like you would see on the side of a construction site, and it, and it can only work uh, up so high and to build a, something solid. And then the next generation climbs up to that next layer on the scaffold and builds higher yet. Um, I saw this in physical fact in India last week, and it was beautiful to watch. Um, if we were to dodge a mass extinction event in the next 30 years and get ourselves in balance with the biosphere, that would be a scaffold of such um, a, immense significance going forward from there. You can imagine, subsequent to that, the following generations would have the opportunity to create scaffolds that would include adequacy for all, a lowering human um, population by way of women's rights worldwide, uh, a stabilization with the biosphere such that civilization could do all of the marvelous things that are within our grasp. We could do, um, I don't wanna say anything we wanted, but we could certainly have all human beings at adequacy and all of the rest of the animals, the wild animals healthy and fulfilling their own lives on this one planet well that's utopian that is uh, mm -hmm. what you got to say is that we're so deep in a hole that we got to climb out of the hole back to some kind of level and from there the the prospects are truly um exciting yeah. uh, so this is how as a i've been committed to writing utopian science fiction full-time almost since 1990 when i started the mars trilogy or even before with pacific edge and yet reacting to the reality of our situation is so uh, dangerous so not doing the right things yet that even trying to talk hopefully and positively right now given the discrepancy between what we know we have to do and what we are actually doing when it comes to burning carbon when it comes to saving the other species that the only um, comfort one can take is that this is the topic on the table now. This is the description of history in our time. Everybody knows it. It is no longer something that a science fiction writer would say as a one scenario amongst others. It's the, the task of the century to do this. And every person who doesn't deliberately look away acknowledges that to be the case. Now, whether we can arrange our behaviors to get a grip quick enough to not blow through planetary boundaries, well, that's the open question. That we, um, no one can say whether we'll do that or not. Well, there, there are many ways we could say you and Ursula share sensibilities. You're both anti-capitalist. Both of you are trying to imagine livable, ambiguous futures as being just two of them. And there are other ambiguous ways you overlap, I think, that are, that involve shared concerns, but maybe divergent sensibilities of how to approach them. But before we go into that, I, I wanted to take a side passage for a moment and pause uh, to just recollect more about her and your life. Because like I'll point, I'll point people to that video you mentioned earlier, but I also want to point people to the video of the talk you gave for the Long Now Foundation called Learning from Le Guin, which is really wonderful. It's really warm, it's substantive, it's funny. Um, and in that talk, you, you use the same phrase to describe Le Guin's work that Molly Gloss chose for the title of, of our conversation, that she writes with a clear, clean line. 
which you say is actually a surfing term. And then you go on to read a passage from the left hand of darkness that goes, rain clouds over dark towers, rain falling in deep streets, a dark storm-beaten city of stone through which one vein of gold winds slowly. And you went on to describe her sentences like this vein of gold, calling her writing a living wire of thought, which I just love. I love this idea of the living wire of thought. But you also share these amazing anecdotes about getting feedback in her office hours, about the various ways your name changed over time with her, that you were calling yourself Kim, and then suddenly you you introduce yourself to Ursula when you meet her as Stan. But then for the longest time, she called you Kim Stan, which makes me think of the of Earthsea and word magic and finding the true name, like how Ged is and isn't Dooney and Ged is is and isn't Sparrowhawk. Um, but what I love the most to imagine is that you you went to see Star Wars with Le Guin when it opened in the theaters and I believe in 77. Um, I'd love to hear anything that this sparks for you. I mean, if you want to share about seeing Star Wars sitting next to Ursula Le Guin, I'm sure people would be interested in that. But anything else about um, maybe another anecdote about you and, and, and her, if... Um, if, if this sparks one. Sure. No, thanks for this. Um, a lovely set of memories for me. For one thing, that talk I gave at the Long Now about Le Guin, uh, invited by a Michael McGilligott, who um, unfortunately died a few years ago. This was an unbelievably good opportunity. And they had found a, a photo of Ursula as a teenage girl, maybe 13 or 14, I've never seen before, which I had them put up overhead as a kind of um, a sigil of what was going on there, the, her playfulness, the, the essential, um, this quality that she had that managed to keep things in balance in that she was a serious person, a serious writer, but um, she understood she was not a pretentious person. She um, it was confident without being pretentious, and she liked to laugh and to make people laugh. And this this photo of her overhead as I was speaking, it was quite a magical moment. Um, I worried that I would get too emotional during the hour, and I never did. I don't know why. Um, it was an accomplishment because uh, I didn't want to get too emotional. And uh, it went marvelously, including the Q&A, which brought up some points that I hadn't managed to uh, cover in a 35-minute talk. But yes, um, back in 77 her class, her writing class, we said, let's go see this new science fiction movie, Star Wars. Nobody had heard anything about it. It was new. We had no expectations. But here's the genre you have to understand. Buck Rogers in the 25th century, there were science fiction spoofs being done through the 70s. Uh, Kentucky Fried Movie. They were silly stoner comedies. They were often filled with... Um, you know, sexual innuendo or straight up sex. I mean, it was the 70s. And so expectations were low and wide ranging. And there we were seeing this thing that was truly silly. And we were laughing our heads off. She was sitting on my immediate left. I remember it well, because we were laughing so hard at the, it was joke after joke after joke. And the idea that Star Wars would morph or um, how can you say it? gargantuate into the horrible monstrous beast that it later became became um 
that never even occurred to us. We thought it was a one-off. We laughed. We went home saying, oh, that was good fun. And I remember we had a party afterwards at one of the student apartments and Ursula was simply sitting on the floor. It was a crowded room. It was a living room. There was probably 15 people in it, all chatting around. No one was particularly focused on her, except for maybe me. I must say, I knew I was with somebody special. Uh, and so did the rest of them. But I, I might have been, as a young, ambitious science fiction writer, a little more focused on her. And there she was sitting on the floor, just chatting with people. It was um, a great day. And I'm thinking, well, another, when we drove to uh, Corvallis and back, uh, she told, she had stenosis of the, of the spine. She, she described what stenosis was. I didn't know what it even meant. And, and we had a long talk about bodily health that was um, intimate in a way we had never been before. Um, and so then on the way back, we started talking about Virginia Woolf and we were trading sentences from Virginia Woolf and cracking each other up. Um, Wolf had this habit of going to think that mm, the British Empire with all of its glories and the way that it did X and it did Y and on and it managed to improve the fate of all of humanity, I doubt. So there would be that. And, and the moment I, I gave that example, Le Guin immediately thought of another one. Um, you could imagine that if everything went right in London and the buses were on time and uh, that everybody would be happy at many more clauses, but no. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. So we were uh, trading our, our pleasures in Wolf. And, and, and indeed, yes, I think I wrote about this. I said to her, um, I, don't, I, I don't like my nonfiction. And she said, oh, don't be pretentious. Your nonfiction is fine. And I said, yeah, but it's not good. It's just, uh, it just drags down the, uh, my, I like to stay behind the screen. I like to be, you know, don't look at the man behind the curtain. I like to be not there at all. My novels stand for me. I am not there. And she's shaking her head going, you know, you got to be kidding me. Uh, don't be pretentious. It sounds like you're uh, rating yourself too high. Um, writing is writing. Um, and then at one point she said, well, just let Kim do it. <laughs> Instead of and, Stan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there was very little I could say to that. <laughs> but it, but you, you don't have your book out of, of essays written by Kim Robinson. No, I still, I think that a book of essays is perhaps going a little too far. Um, why burden the world with it? It's not my forte. Um, people do it, but it's just to get another book out there. Mm. And really, there's I can I'm not going to name them because it's a little bit uh, mean and critical. And um, there's many a very fine novelist who you look at their book of collected essays and you're like, wow, how'd they write such a good novel when they're <laughs> such a yeah. Um, and and there are good essays, but there's a lot of novelists that aren't amongst them, and yet they publish a book of essays anyway. Yeah. I'm trying to avoid that and um, partially succeeding. Well, I, I I found a little excerpt of something Le Guin wrote about seeing Star Wars that I'd never seen before. I was just searching around, and ah, and she she said this: the end of Star Wars kept bothering me after I saw it the first time. I kept thinking, such a funny, silly, beautiful movie. 
why did George Lucas stick on that wooden ending, a high school graduation with prizes for good citizenship? But when I saw it again, I realized it wasn't high school, but West Point, a place crawling with boots and salutes. Aren't there any civilians in this empire anyhow? Finally, a friend who knows films explained to me that the scene is a nostalgic evocation or imitation of Lenny Riefenstahl's famous film of the 1936 Olympics, with the German winners receiving a grateful ovation from the Thousand-Year Reich. Having dragged Dorothy and Toto and that lot around the cosmos a bit, Lucas cast about for another surefire golden oldie and came up with Adolf Hitler. Anyhow, what the hell is nostalgia doing in a science fiction film? With the whole universe and all the future to play in, Lucas took his marvelous toys and crawled under the fringed cloth on the parlor table back into a nice safe hidey hole along with Flash Gordon and the Cowardly Lion and Huck Skywalker and the Flying Aces and the Hitler Youth. If there's a message there, I don't think I want to hear it. I don't know if this relates to Utopia. <laughs> I was surprised to find this. This was written just a couple years later, I think, than when you saw the movie with her. But I wonder, like, this ending um, that feels like the an end to history, perhaps, that gets, like, put on the end. I know that isn't the end of the story, obviously, um, or that we're seeing a, a, perfected, a perfected society, but... How to put this? Say you're in, you grow up in a ghetto, um, and I mean it in the shuttle sense of Eastern Europe, where there's walls. You have an internal in that world. You're like um, you, us against everybody, us against the world. You take care of each other. You're like an extended family, um, and there's a, a esoteric quality to the intellectual life there that's quite intense. And people have all read each other, and there's great writers, and it's uh, in some ways better than the outside world. Um, certainly more intense because it's you're inside the ghetto. And science fiction, the science fiction that took Le Guin in. So, okay, she's writing 10 years and not getting published because she's different. And people are writing her rejection letters going, well, why'd you make up a country? And what, this is so weird. And, and it's good. It's very well written, but I don't get it. And then suddenly she almost makes an accidental submission to the science fiction fantasy world. And they're like, oh, my God, you are the greatest new thing. And the science fiction world loves their newest writers. Mm. When you're new there and good, adding something special and, and, and new to the field, then you're, you're quickly beloved. And she went from 10 years of being ignored and even rejected outright and a, a non-entity in the culture to being a star between say 63 and 69 she went from zero to 60 to you know from from unknown to one of the great stars of science fiction and supported by the stories by the way which were good in the 50s but um they got better when she knew she had an audience receptive audience and you could imagine that that world which had accepted her which uh, had an intelligent conversation with her even people like Delaney or Russ, you know, she's really banging around there with the stars and everybody is loving her. And then Star Wars comes along and it's this re uh, grab bag of 1930s games, tricks. It was funny when you see it the first time because you're thinking pastiche, parody, Buck Rogers in the 21st century. It didn't take much thought afterwards to come up with the conclusions. And I think Ursula 
and the rest of the science fiction world watched in dismay, the ghetto walls came down and the world regarded science fiction to be Star Wars. It was the definition of what science fiction was, whereas it, two years before it had been the dispossessed and Triton and the female man and an intellectual and political ferment. It had been the 60s and now it was the 80s. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't imagine a more <laughs> uh, dis dispiriting and horrid turn. Huh, interesting. We all went through that. So um, the dislike for Star Wars, and also there used to be the mid-list. You could make a living as a science fiction writer. You'd write two science fiction novels a year. You'd scrape along a living and a few people would read you, but the publishers would keep publishing you. With Star Wars, that got franchised. It got taken over. And uh, it's famous, the mid-listed science fiction kind of died with the writers themselves, but new writers came along, they had to write for franchises. Uh, it was um, a changed world for the worse. Mm -hmm. So um, none of us liked Star Wars once the trilogy of movies was done. At that point, science fiction itself had been smash-mouthed. Mm. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about the way your sensibilities diverge. And of course, push back if this feels wrong, my characterization. But while you're both thinking about ways to envision ourselves on the other side of resource extractive capitalism, your solutions tend to be more statist, more governmental, about finding agreements across nations and within nations. And Le Guin's tends to be more anarchist, not in the sense of no rules, but in terms of no rulers, a, a bottom-up approach like um, perhaps like what a previous guest, Adrian Marie Brown, calls emergent strategy. And I think this is a gross simplification of both sides, actually. Um, for instance, to, to complicate things, you gave a talk for the anniversary of the book Ecotopia, where you were imagining writing today's version of it. And in that speech, you talked about how incredibly leveraged the banking system is and that they only have to have around 3% of the money actually on hand at any given time. And that an act of collective civil disobedience involving mass default on debt could be, a, it would cause a liquidity crisis and, it, and a banking collapse, but it also could be a way to, because of that, rebuild society. So even though you envision, I think, global governance you also envision ways to disrupt certain systems of power and disrupt the ways runaway climate change is accelerating and the way that acceleration has been monetized. Um, and I, ha I have a, a, a way that I want to propose that I think that even in this divergence that you and Le Guin actually connect, um, that we could connect this bottom-up emergent sensibility of hers and your infrastructural approach but before I propose it, I guess I wondered if you felt like this was a roughly fair characterization, and if not, um, if you could complicate it for us. Oh, no, I see what you're saying, and I think it basically um, captures some aspects of it. Um, I would hope that both Ursula and I have, through the years, written enough um, narratives that include politics, that it's hard to pin down what exactly we would advocate if we were suddenly made king or queen uh, in terms of a system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's variable, it's flexible. Um, 
and and I would say that we were both American leftists of the West Coast variety. And although she ended up in Oregon, um, she began as a Californian. So there is a certain kind of a shared California leftism, progressivism that um, I feel like there aren't too many differences. But she often set her uh, political narratives on other planets and other times in other societies that gave her the freedom to focus in on a few characters and small scale communalisms that are um, very beautiful and suggestive. And they have political resonances, like we should be working towards this. Very often I've been trying to describe things here on earth in the very near future. Well, the constraints are intense. And I feel like we need the state, the nation state system to function well enough to get us to the next system. And I'm constantly focused on what's the bridge to the good society that we could actually count on right now, here and now, and, and begin to build it. So it looks, um, you know, in some ways it looks more state driven, but even more conservative. Like I'm just saying, let's go for Keynesianism and, and social democracy and then hope for the best that we can, if we can get that, maybe we can get the next thing. Mm. Whereas she throws her mind forward to, well, what if we've already lived for a long time in a communal society of, of um, especially what she does over and over again is the end of sexism, equality, gender equality is uh, something she goes to back to repeatedly and describes societies working that way for us to contemplate that all problems wouldn't be solved, but it would be a better place to live in. So there are um, different emphases. And, you know, you mentioned her clean line. Uh, she had a power of uh, discrimination and judgment. I've got a story here. What details do I need to make that story come to life? Let's say them with a certain skillful prose ability, like her, her best poetry is in her prose, and not go into too much detail so that you don't um, slow the reader down, you don't fuzz the edges, you make something iconic or even sometimes mythic. Well, that's her great gift, I think. Um, and it it means that I, I think I, I very often get lost in the weeds. Every story strikes me as interesting. So I tell all the stories like, but what about the main story? Well, whatever, I'll get there eventually. So I have these bug crushing novels, you know, very often 700, 800, 900 pages long because it strikes me that almost everything is interesting. And I'll, you know, I'll defend my, my novels. It's a different style. But you can't help but love her style for its clean line. And that has political ramifications. You know, let's, um, let's keep it simple. But of course, in politics, if you get enough people, it's never simple. So in a way, perhaps I'm doing something that is more um, gnarly and realistic in, in unhelpful ways. Well, helpful or unhelpful, it makes me think a little bit of when you said, would we be different people? even with the same parents and with the same DNA if we were born in a different society. So if we were born in an anarchist rebel moon, for instance, um, yeah. because it, it sounds like partly what you're arguing is that in, in many ways you, you and Le Guin are, are cut from a similar cloth and yet um, you're placing yourself in different worlds. And because of that, 
like so your near future world is going to produce a different set of problems and and questions and constraints than a world that's um like her always say always coming home 500 years in the future in california versus uh, 30 years in the future in california yeah yeah Yeah. well it's um it's a big fictional world the future and so near future will tend to be a kind of domestic realism with some proleptic um you know trajectories followed to make a point middle distance uh, you get out there that's my zone 200 years in the future within the solar system few people have occupied that zone as a political space and then you've got space opera let's go out around the galaxy have other thought experiment type planets and societies that's ursula's land the hanish universe is a real achievement it's a fantasy space but that is not to put it down Uh, it's just to say it's a story space that uh, perhaps is um, physically impossible but who cares it's a story space where she can explore all these thought experiments and i haven't done that anywhere near as much as she has so we have we definitely have different playgrounds where our imaginations are are, are drawn to that's where the stories come from i i think she would agree that you don't get to choose what stories the, your stories choose you mm-hmm. and say to you this is what you can write and this is what you must write and then you follow that lead. And I saw that in here all the time. And I feel that in myself. Mm. Um, I want to tell a story about, which cracks me up about her. Um, she's written about this, a post-locus depression, the idea that uh, when you get a good review, you only remember the bad sentence in it and the good review. Uh, the, the 99 good sentences are completely overwhelmed by the bad sentence. Every writer will recognize this syndrome. But she was funny and honest about it in a way that not everybody is. Well, I read her Sea Roads, which is a collection of short stories set on her beach town in Oregon. And that is a beautiful short story collection. And again, it's a little tiny community where everybody knows each other. And it's not perfect. It's not utopian, but it is um, human and nice. But it was in a, written in a phase of her career and, and, and telling her, I just love Sea Roads. It's amongst your best books. It does bother me that there isn't a single male character in, in the entire book that is a, a nice person. The women are nice. The men are assholes. I mean, it seems a little harsh. And, you know, nobody but the, the postmaster, the, the mailman was a nice guy, but he was like the minorist character in the entire book. And so she wrote back and said, thank you, thank you. Well, 10 years later, I saw her in text somewhere else uh, answering an interview. Stan Robinson doesn't think I have any good male <laughs> characters in Zeros. <laughs> right. It just stuck. It stuck in it her brain. Stuck. <laughs> and it, it made me laugh and it made me uh, happy because as she cared what I thought. And I do, I wonder... There was an imbalance in her for a few years where I feel that she was overcompensating because she was being accused of being not a feminist, which was so wrong. And And just because she was a housewife living a conventional life, and she had kids and she was married to a man and, and, a, and she had a, a typical suburban life, which I myself have also had. It's another thing that I uh, cherish about similarities between us. Um, this standard American middle-class suburban life can be the platform for a lot of good books. Um, but she, I think, felt 
irritated and Ursula irritated was likely to um, um, strike out with a sometimes with a perfect accuracy and balance sometimes she would just punch back she had quite a temper and uh, people who knew her much better than I did would would I think confirm that but I saw it myself in the way that she would occasionally spear me so I know it was there <laughs> uh, I when I was in her class, I, 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 I made a comment about one of the texts that she had assigned. I guess I can even say now because Vonda's gone too, alas. She had assigned The Exile Waiting, which was dedicated to Ursula and, and uh, compared to the other novels in that class was nowhere near as good. And I thought, oh, she's just putting one of her students' uh, books on the reading list, a supporter, blah, blah. And there's this moment in The Exile Waiting where a 10 year old girl holds off a six foot five minor with a pen knife or something. And the minor doesn't just sweep her aside. And, and I complained, I said, this is just so unrealistic. And Ursula said, does any of the women in this class think that that's true? And none of the women raised their hands. And so she said, okay, let's go on. <sighs> so I was put in my place. Yeah. <clears throat> but to get back to the main point, she uh, overemphasized what how, what a, a feminist she was for a few years, partly uh, to make defend herself against attacks by inappropriate attacks by people who were pretending to be even more feminist than she was. And I don't think that you could be more feminist than she was, to tell you the honest. Um, she made the most powerful presentation of gender equality throughout her life and her work. Um, how could you do better, really? Well, I wanted to, maybe this will be an oblique way to connect the two of you also. Um, but I wanted to propose a connection, and I'm going to start by reading a couple sections from her 1982 essay, A Non-Euclidean View of California as a Cold Place to Be. In it, she echoes something we've already discussed. She says, every utopia since Moore's utopia has also been clearly or obscurely actually or possibly in the author's or in the reader's judgment, both a good place and a bad one. Every utopia contains a dystopia. Every dystopia contains an utopia. But I want to explore another statement of hers. Quote, I don't think we're ever going to get utopia again by going forward. In the same essay, she unpacks this statement and she says, in the introduction to The Wishing Bone Cycle, Howard A. Norman says, quote, The swampy Cree have a conceptual term, which I've heard used to describe the thinking of a porcupine as he backs into a rock crevice, which is, he goes backward, looks forward. The porcupine consciously goes backward in order to speculate safely on the future, allowing him to look out at his enemy or the new day. To the Cree, it's an instructive act of self-preservation. The opening formula for a Cree story is an invitation to listen, followed by the phrase, I go backward, look forward, as the porcupine does. And then to come back out to Le Guin's language, because she was quoting Howard Norman there, she says, in order to speculate safely on an inhabitable future, Perhaps we would do well to find a rock crevice and go backward. In order to find our roots, perhaps we should look for them where roots are usually found. All of this makes me think of her 
post-apocalyptic novel set in, in future California, Always Coming Home, which looks a lot like our pre-colonial indigenous past. Again, not a romantic vision of our future or of our past, but an ambiguous one where solutions to some problems raise new problems and new questions. But our future is utopian insofar as it reestablishes a non-extractive reciprocal relationship to the earth, even if some of the societies are still patriarchal and the sea levels have risen and flooded part of the state and styrofoam has endured. But the other thing that this idea that we are never going to get utopia again by going forward makes me think of is also the trajectory of your own career since the Mars trilogy. So the Mars trilogy is, is, seems to be in, in one regard to be a future of going forward, of leaving the planet, of puzzling out the terraforming of Mars. But since then, you've, you've talked about how you followed the science and realized that it is now really a question of here or nowhere, that any imaginative futures where we avert global mass extinction that involve leaving the planet are escapist fantasies. And you've been met with some anger around that in some of your readership. Um, I was hoping you could talk about this, what you discovered maybe most notably in your book Aurora around what we could or couldn't do if we were to try to live on an intergenerational starship. And perhaps like Le Guin, when she says, in order to find our roots, perhaps we should look for them where roots are usually found. It feels like your books are now largely rooted on earth now as the place of both the problems and the solutions. Well, yes, there's a lot of that going on. Um, I still love the planetary romance and the solar system. So I would say that my books from 2312 on, or maybe even Galileo's dream are make a kind of a set um, thinking about these issues that you're bringing up how do we go forward and make a, a humane and pleasing society and the big answer is we've got to come into balance with earth's biosphere that we're never going to get away from earth um in 2312 i speculated that if we uh, occupied the solar system we would still be dependent on earth and have to go back every seven years in order to get our bacterial load that we've co-evolved with this planet and we're never going to be able to leave it. Aurora makes that case that the intergenerational starship is an impossible dream and a fantasy space. Now, on the one hand, as a fantasy space, um, the galaxy is a great story space. Uh, Le Guin's Hain Cycle, Gene Wolfe's uh, Book of the Long Sun, where a starship is going to another planet. These are great novels, great stories. So you can use them for that and learn lessons about human beings. But as a plan for humanity, it's Earth or nothing. And the rest of, even the rest of the solar system will be like Antarctica is to us now. Interesting, beautiful, useful as um, a space to learn about our planet but not livable, a place that will always come back to the world, as people say when they've been in Antarctica for six months, I'm going back to the world. And that's the right thing to say. So um, for me, though, when thinking about the earlier quote of Le Guin and her and notion of going back, this is the pastoral notion of, of uh, utopian thinking, but it's also important. Uh, in other words, it's not just 
oh, there was a better time back in the old days, a kind of nostalgia. Um, for one thing, there's some truth to that, but not a whole lot. You would want modern medicine to save your life in ways that couldn't happen in the past. But on the other hand, we evolved to be these primates that we are. And we were living in small groups and we were active physically out there in the world. And I've been making the case in lectures and in my novels for many years that what we need to do is basically a kind of um, social biology, which when you look at it properly is a feminist enterprise because the other primates uh, show clearly that there is always a female power that is very um, evident and um, laid out into the world by action. So in other words, social biology is not just about uh, gangster alpha males, might equals right equals might, might equals right. That isn't what sociobiology was saying. It was saying we're social primates. We evolved this way. Let's study that. When you do that, you realize that getting outdoors, walking around, using your body and your sight, and coordinating yourself in space, uh, dancing, singing, looking at fire, cooking food, eating and drinking, having sex, these paleolithic activities, they grew the brain from one third of the size it is now to the size it is now and talking a lot of course and having uh, social interactions with a small group of other people all that is fundamental to us biologically and ursula was very attuned to that it comes partly from her parents from her dad's work as a anthropologist of the native americans and and it was krober her dad who noticed that the california native americans were peaceful and the pacific northwestern uh, Native Americans were more warlike and had slaves, and there was nothing material to make this distinction between these two cultures. It was a cultural either or. He even postulated that cultures began to develop by distinguishing themselves from the other cultures nearby that they want to be different from. Well, this, I think, had a big influence on her, uh, and that's why always coming home one thing I'd love to say about this is you look at the table of contents of Always Coming Home and you look at the table of contents of her father's book, Handbook of the California Indians, and they are identical. Mm -hmm. Her book is an homage to her dad's work and sticks it out into the future and says there's things that we have lost in European Western rationality and in our modernity and all these things that make us less happy and less healthy than we would have been the in a more smaller more organic more paleolithic society and here's my proof and she runs story after story experimenting with these ideas well these are great stories and they are important thoughts to keep on to especially in this moment of the internet of people sitting indoors looking at boxes looking at screens not getting outdoors not using their not being embodied except in certain restricted commercialized ways um she was i i filled with admiration because um i share these values and perhaps i was taught them somewhat by reading her work uh and her dad's work or they brought that they brought it to my attention and uh, my life as an outdoor person um has been really important to me but it comes all and it's a matter of practice it just feels right it's what i want to do and i like to spread the word i like to say look you'll have more fun walking down to the corner and throwing pebbles at a 
at a bottle on a post than you will sitting together playing a video game and using your thumbs and your eyeballs only. Um, and I think I, it's a demonstrably true. In other words, you could run it as a scientific experiment and, and test people's blood pressures and endorphins, and you could give them surveys and ask them uh, clever questions about how happy are you really. I mean, I think it's scientifically provable, but it's also just a felt reality. Uh, and yet people are, are deceived uh, into our current uh, commercial space. And then again, what you said is true. Le Guin and I are both anti-capitalists because capitalism wants your money. They want your life, not your money or your life, but your money and your life. And you can resist that in your personal behaviors. And she did that very well. What you hinted at in some of your uh, following the science um, in this notion of now here or nowhere for the solutions. I, I like how you're, I like how you're bringing the out, out in space, space opera as an important space, defending it as an important story space. But when we're talking about realistic science fictional futures, um, you, one of the things you mentioned that you learned that changed things for you was, for instance, that 50% of the cells in our body aren't us. They're, yeah. they're bacteria and fungi and viruses. And we don't know anything. We, we can't point to robust science to tell us what that means in terms of us being out in space or um, what I'm sure there, I, I, I'm curious about the, just the, the gap of what we don't know in the real world, like for instance, we haven't, we don't know what happens with, with pregnancy and childbirth in, in space, for instance, yeah. um, which seems like a significant thing. But I guess I wondered if you could just for a moment put the timelines next to each other so we could see the difference between what is the timeline that we're dealing with when we're talking about we want to still be able to live on the planet, uh, this planet to be livable for humans. What is that timeline in comparison to say um, Elon Musk's dream of getting uh, a colony of billionaires on Mars. There's a bad science fiction story that uh, if you had a, a colony of people on the moon or on Mars, and if everybody on earth were to die, that those few thousands of people on the other planet would then be able to repopulate the human race and keep the human race going well this is bad on several different levels um the colony on the other planet it will be utterly dependent on resupplies from earth of everything from bacteria to materials that don't exist on that other planet um those people if if earth were to suddenly become uninhabitable and go away that colony would be doomed in the way that aurora describes so that's one part, bad part of the fantasy. The other one is there's nothing that can happen that will kill off all human beings on earth. We are like cockroaches or ants. And 73,000 years ago, there was a volcanic explosion so intense that um, there, was no, there was no summer. It was an, like a nuclear winter, except it was volcanic, lasted 10 or 20 years. Only 2,500 humans on this planet survived that bottleneck. This is 73,000 years ago when, when humans were everywhere. But uh, at the end of that, in that nuclear winter, they weren't everywhere. We had to start over again, probably from the coast of South Africa. They were mostly on a place that had clam beds and a tuber that survived in the dark. And so they ate clams and tubers for 
10 years and they repopulated the earth and, and came back out of Africa yet again. And there were probably little pockets of people elsewhere as well. So, so the, the science fiction story that says we need to have, don't put all your eggs in one basket is bullshit on multiple levels. Each part of it falls apart. So um, the fantasy, here's the thing, we're in a planetary crisis, a civilizational crisis, let's put it that way. If we cause a mass extinction event and if we blow through planetary boundaries and get to hot house earth, no ice on this planet, civilization will crash, billions will die. Some people faced with that say, well, I'm going to go off to my private island mansion. You know, that's other people's problems. I'm going to buy a, an estate in, in the South Island of New Zealand, or I'm going to establish a colony on Mars. This escapist fantasy is the most simplistic, um, useless, and rather craven response to the general emergency. So um, I don't know why they do it. It's so blatantly obvious. Um, it, it strikes me that um, they haven't looked at the evidence, they haven't thought about it, they've allowed their, their kind of escapist desires, which are relatively immature and, and juvenile, you might even say, to overwhelm their good sense, or they're pretending, they're saying these things and they don't truly believe it in the end, it's just a, a stance in the mediascape, I, I can't explain it, it it's bullshit. It needs to be fought. And since I am the man from Mars, I mean, my Mars trilogy was indeed the thing that gave me a certain standing in the culture. Then when I say Mars is great and would be a fun place to garden in the 26th century, if we were to get our act together here on earth and have a stable civilization on earth, then Mars is kind of an interesting project or reward. Then that has a more heft than if I hadn't being the writer of the Mars trilogy. Yeah, I think so too. Um, well, in that same essay that I quoted from, Non-Euclidean View of California, Le Guin weaves in both anarchism and Taoism, um, something that she likes to put in relationship to each other. I'm just going to quote a little bit more and then ask another question. Utopia has been Euclidean. It has been European. It has been masculine. I'm trying to suggest in an evasive, distrustful, untrustworthy fashion, and as obscurely as I can, that our final loss of faith in that radiant sandcastle may enable our eyes to adjust to a dimmer light and in it perceive another kind of utopia. And this utopia would not be Euclidean, European, or masculinist. My terms and images in speaking of it must be tentative and seem peculiar. Victor Turner's antithesis of structure and communitas are useful to my attempt to think about it. Structure in society, in his terms, is cognitive, communitas existential. Structure provides a model, communitas a potential. Structure classifies, communitas reclassifies. Structure is expressed in legal and political institutions, communitas in art and religion. But then she goes on to talk from a Taoist lens. Utopia has been young in one way or another from Plato on. Utopia has been the big young motorcycle trip, bright, dry, clear, strong, firm, active, aggressive, linear, progressive, creative, expanding, advancing, and hot. Our civilization is now so intensely young 
that any imagination of bettering its injustices or eluding its self-destructiveness must involve a reversal. We must return, go round, go inward, go yinward. And later she quotes Zhuangzi, who said, the best understanding rests in what we cannot understand. If you do not understand this, then heaven the equalizer will destroy you. And that does feel like part of our situation, the question of whether we can tolerate making space for and living among the things that we can't understand, the, the quote-unquote wilderness, and allow it to flourish alongside us, even if we can't reduce it to meaning or to utility. But I guess I wondered if, like Le Guin, there's any through line of spiritual practice in your work. I think of your book, Shaman, but also in ministry, we get uh, spirituality. Is, is there an ethos, a, a counterpart, a counterpoint to your interest in science that is in engagement with what we can't know. I mean, I'm even thinking of, you know, we were talking before um, we started recording and you just came back from meeting the Dalai Lama, for instance. I am, I am a California hippie, new age Zen Buddhist. Uh, Circa 1970, Ram Dass, uh, D.T. Suzuki, Gary Snyder, for sure, who was another friend and teacher. And um, Snyder and Le Guin liked each other. Um, And uh, Zen Buddhism in the Californian variety, which is a real variety, it's a a sect, there's many sects of Buddhism, and it's a California Buddhism is a definitely an offshoot of Zen with a certain attraction to the exoticism of Tibetan Buddhism, the reincarnations, the ornate um, ceremonies, they were attractive to Californians, but in terms of actual practice of Buddhism in California, it would be Zen, chop wood, carry water, unpretentious attention to the moment, and trying to Uh, practice compassion for all sentient beings and be in your body and in the moment. So it matches well with, I think, the Paleolithic. It matches well with the California life. It's what I've practiced, and it's been a huge help to me. I've written about it quite often. In my Washington, D.C. trilogy, I have Tibetan Buddhists come to Washington, D.C. and try to change the National Science Foundation pretty much by accident. Um, and the whole novel is based on, a, on a, an enjambment of Buddhism and science to see what happens. Um, with Le Guin, she was much more interested in Taoism, and her translation of the Book of Changes is uh, great. I would say that she really thought about it, and the vagueness, the talk about ambiguity, the, the original text in Chinese, when you transfer those um ideograms into english nouns or verbs you have something quite mysterious that it's then your job to interpret and you i've collected translations of the the book of changes and hers is certainly among the very best along with maybe stephen mitchell from my point of view just as another reader but and so balance what's what i think um um Le Guin is a very uh, serious thinker about Taoism and about balancing feeling and thinking, cognition and emotion, these dualisms that she talked about, trying to make a balance. Then you got the yin-yang figure as a 
a way to um, turn that into a graphic, um, a sigil that you can look at and contemplate. It's ecology. It teaches her, you see this all through her work, her respect for other animals, for the planet itself, for a, a devaluation of the human and of reason and of patriarchal power, capitalism, patriarch, patriarchy, and racism are like a triple strand. And she's much more interested in the other triple strand, which is Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism. Um, so she has this Asian, and this is very, this is where she is very much a California intellectual following her father in California, Rex Roth and others in, in the Bay Area, they're facing East Asia. Mm -hmm. They're not facing Europe. And even though she was a French major, she's super interested in Asia culture. And it's natural as a Californian and, some, and an Oregonian to look across the Pacific because you see these people in your lives every day. So I regard her as a first, she herself was always extremely modest and unpretentious. Well, I'm, I'm just a, you know, I can't think numbers. I'm just an English major. I don't, I don't have thoughts. I just have sentences. I don't know what I think. I mean, she's, you can find her a million times. And at least in conversation, I certainly often found her dismissing herself as a thinker, but that was because she knew she had a whole bunch of great novels under her belt. And she did not have to make claims to be a thinker. A novel is a thing. <laughs> Some thought had to go into it. <laughs> As a fiction writer, she was superb. And so she could say, look, I might be the curator for somebody inside me who is better at this stuff than I am. I might not be able to articulate and nor do I want to articulate. Uh, although she wrote craft notes as much as anybody. So she was a complicated person in these regards, but I, I was always impressed by, in a way that would remind me, you know, try to be like Ursula. Um, remember that you don't know very much and what you do know is fuzzy and can't be explained to other people. And so um, because you do have this one gift that seems to come from somewhere else, um, get out of the way of the gift write your stories. And more than me, she was a full-on uh, person of letters. Uh, uh, in other words, criticism, essays, poetry, uh, fiction of all kinds. Uh, she did it all. I myself would prefer to stick to just fiction and leave the rest go, which is another tactic to take. And I haven't stuck to it. But um, I'm rambling here, but I'm trying to I'm trying to think about Ursula in ways that are leading me down these various um, pathways, and and come back to this: the Taoism for her was not an exoticism; it wasn't trivial; it was basic to her understanding and her attempt to be in the world, to find that balance between the yin and the yang. And she was a assertive, um, uh, spiky, a, a dragon-esque. It wasn't like she was a, a wimpy person. She was extremely uh, bold and assertive. So she kept the balance, in mm -hmm. other words. But she thought that the culture hadn't kept the balance. And she needed to defend women at every point because she was not in a post-patriarchy. She was um, a powerful mind, a woman in America trying to change America to make it less patriarchal, more feminist. So that was always on her mind, that sense, uh, let's get back to a balance. Well, what you say makes me think of, when I think of the, the Chuang Tzu saying, the best understanding rests in what, what we cannot understand, um, 
I think of E.O. Wilson's Half Earth, maybe in relation to what you were saying earlier about Keynesian, like focusing on Keynesian economics so that we can get these other things. But first, let's focus on something we could get and then and then work out those problems to be able to create better solutions. I mean, I don't know if this is making sense, but what I mean is this tall, like, can we live alongside what we don't understand uh, with, and, and let me put in the, the would say wilderness as maybe as, as like the word that to, to, um, to exist for that. And of course, like if we lean into this question of half earth, it has all sorts of issues and problems conceptually or just logistically, but it does feel like it's, it, there's something compelling about the simplicity of this idea of systems thinking that we need to be allowing things to live on their own terms that aren't us yes. on the planet. And so there's something like as a step, um, the simplicity of it feels compelling because it gets us thinking outside of um, human centric uh, outcomes. Yes. Uh, I think Ursula would love these developments that are happening. And when half earth came out, I thought, well, there's a utopian dream for you. That'll never happen. And now we have 30 by 30 programs all over the planet um, institutionalized as in California and signed off on 30% of the land left to wild creatures uh, by 2030 and everybody in these projects is saying and also 50 by 50 that by 2050 we get to 50 percent um the, it's an achievable goal which is surprising when you think about how much of the uh, surface of the earth humans have covered but we're tending now to collapse into cities of people's own free will young people go to cities and if you we were to make a uh, organized scientific um uh, movement into the cities and take care of the countrysides in the right ways, we could get to half earth visions where we, and this would be very uh, Taoist, very Ursula to just leave the other animals to live their lives. We live our lives. The earth itself comes back to health. When the biosphere is healthy, then we're healthy. So it is very much of a, everything's connected, ecological yin yang type solution. And one of the things that does give me hope is how quickly this idea has has um, gathered momentum and has some legal force in the world. Uh, it would it's it's an, um, striking how if you think back to her moment, in other words, when she hit science fiction and began to change it um, in the word for world is forest and in many of her stories, the natural world and uh, buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? The other animals and the natural world were important characters to her, a value. And this, I think, also might come from her father and from Native Americans, from paying attention to the, to the land that she was on. Um, she, is, um, uh, she was ahead of the curve in this and writing stories that maybe she wouldn't even be able to articulate the theory behind it, I wouldn't know. But I could well imagine her saying, I like this story, I'm going to write it down. I like this story, I'm going to write it down and not be able to um, explain why until years later. Mm. So um, the good. this is one of those realms of, this is a utopian imaginary. What if humans could get by on this planet and there were less of us because women had full control over their lives 
at which point the population rate begins to slightly go down just uh, of, um, out of women's choices, free choices. And so you slowly but surely uh, head towards the society described in always coming home without an apocalypse, mm -hmm. without it happening from catastrophe, but as a, a natural evolution of history itself, doing the right thing time after time and paying attention to the other um, living creatures on the planet as being our, our brothers and sisters and even part of our own bodies. Well, it's, um, it's a vision. And, and what, I, what I like about it when I think about Le Guin in, in relation to it is that her work will always stand both historically and in present. So readers will keep reading her forever. And when they read her, they'll, there'll be two things. There'll be the present pleasure of the story I'm reading it. It's the first time I crossed the ice with Jen Liai and Estervan. But also, you put it in its historical place. You think, my gosh, in the 1970s, this woman was changing the world in, in her historical moment. So it'll have that double pleasure. Well, I like how you keep bringing up feminism, population, and ecology together. Because, uh, I mean, on the one hand, if you look at population science and population scientists, they say like the carrying capacity on the planet, if we're thinking of systems, if we're thinking of balance between the human and the non-human, um, and everybody were to achieve the, um, the uh, standard of living of the poorest of European nations, um, it would be one to three billion people. But on the other hand, population scientists have will never talk about population anymore because as soon as they bring up population, it becomes quickly a discussion around eugenics or around or eco-fascists take over the com conversation um, around around immigration. So what they do talk about is is what you have mentioned. A lot of the strategies that population scientists are are using now is um, to focus on feminism. That the more women have control over their own bodies the lower the birth rate is in every country. Um, that if we focus, I mean, the strategy has been rather than say there's a problem with having, you know, soon to have 11 billion people on the planet, uh, which leads to these, these regressive conversations, um, that if you focus on femi feminism, you can have the same outcome, but with a progressive outcome. Well, justice is good for the biosphere. And that is a truth that is of a great comfort to all of us. Um, and I would say that the carrying capacity of the of Earth's biosphere for humans is not well determined at all. Um, the estimates run from 100 million to 12 trillion. And those are outliers that are both kind of crazy. The mainstream estimates go from, say, 2 billion to maybe 30 billion. Um, it depends on how clean the tech is. So population as a number itself, in and of itself, is not adequate to make this description because we don't all live the same like deer or, or something. So you have to do the Paul Ehrlich IPAT formula. The, the impact on the earth of humans equals uh, population times appetite for stuff times cleanness of technology or dirtiness. So IPAT, population times appetite or, or affluence or assholery, whatever, times um, technology. And But you, I think you're it, to get to adequacy, where everybody has food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, education, and electrical power for all 8 billion, that's doable. 
but only if we are concentrating on that as the goal. And if that were the goal, we could get there. And then the population would indeed slack down in ways that would take pressure off the biosphere. Because there might be some constraints where I've seen good arguments that echo what you said, that that the natural carrying capacity for all humans being healthy and all the other animals might be more like 3 billion. And we were at 3 billion not very long ago. So, um, and, and society worked perfectly well. There wasn't a feeling of, oh, if only there were 5 billion more of us, <laughs> life would be more interesting. Right. <laughs> we were doing fine. And we might get back to that in a, in a uh, uh, what can I say in a healthy way rather than by crash. And that would be the, that would be the goal. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to quote Le Guin one more time for, before my final question. But um, Le Guin said, if utopia is a place that does not exist, then surely as Lao Tzu would say, the way to get there is by the way that is not a way. And in the same vein, the nature of the utopia I am trying to describe is such that if it is to come, it must exist already. And perhaps in the spirit of our discussion of H.G. Wells bringing utopias into history, you've said that the, quote, onrush of catastrophic climate change has forced a reckoning. We either invent and institute a better way or a mass extinction will take us down with it. Necessity has thus jammed utopia into history and turned it from a minor literary genre into an important tool of human thought. So if the utopia that is to come must already exist, um, tell us from our current utopia, um, what has writing ministry um, shifted for you? What questions are raised or desires created through completing that book and and maybe just if you if you're willing, tip your hand a little bit about some of the animating questions of that might produce what we can expect from you next. Um, how how next are you thinking of addressing or reckoning with um, stepping forward um, on the way that is not the way? Well, it's a work in progress for me. I have to admit, um, um, the ministry for the future has transformed my life. And although I was perfectly happy with my, uh, the way my career was going before it, um, since it, I am uh, being read by a much wider range of people, people who don't usually read science fiction. And really, for many and many a person, Ministry for the Future is the first book of mine they've ever read, first time they've ever heard of me. And maybe even the first time they've read science fiction and they don't even recognize it as science fiction. They're just thinking of it as a, a pushed a realism or a, a, a thing coming out of, a, I think of creature from the black lagoon, this black creature is all wet and covered with black kelp is charged up out of the swamp and is um, teaching people things. Well, it's, it's interesting and I'm gratified. I like it. Um, but I also don't like it because really I'm just a novelist. And when I get asked by people who are really experts in fields to comment on their field, well, there I feel a, a, a moment of Le Guinian modesty. Like, look, I just write novels. I mean, you've got the novel. I can't add much more to it. But I'm beginning to learn 
there are ways you can prompt people or you can put people together with other people that didn't know they existed. You can be a node in a network. You can ask questions. You can and do the utopian thing of saying, well, if we got it together, um, if we did these things, we would get to a good place. So why don't we do these things? And be some kind of a cardboard cutout of minister for the future or a what used to be called a public intellectual. Um, I don't like it. It's it's a fuzzy zone. Again, it's worth looking to Le Guin, who became a public intellectual, and she wrote very decisive reviews and essays. Uh, I, it doesn't appeal to me. Um, I'm thinking about what comes next in my own writing life, doing different kinds of writing, letting ministry stand as my work for a while. Um, and but also you you mentioned her talking about it, elements of of um, utopia must already exist or else we wouldn't be able to imagine them. I think that's right. Raymond Williams talks about the residual and the emergent that any cultural moment, like say right now, has residual elements from the past that sometimes are weighing down on us, sometimes are keeping us going because they're valuable. In other words, the residual isn't bad and the emergent good, nor was the residual all good and the emergent bad. It's not that kind of cut. But what you can see is a place like Mondragon, Spain, a community gathers and says, look, enough of this ownership stuff, enough of capitalism. We live in a world we can't change, but we're going to own all the businesses together. The employees are going to own the businesses. There's going to be no shareholders. Uh, we're going to split the profits for the year in our various useful factories and enterprises, one third to us, one third to charities that we choose, one third to capital improvements for our machinery. And we're going to go on as a co-op. And if you look up cooperative values, like on Wikipedia or whatnot, you've got like 10 statements of value that that's already a utopian system. And what's startling is that um, people don't seem to notice that there's a better system already functioning right in the society that you're in right now. So you, you think about the IWW um, creating the new society within the shell of the old. And could there be things that you could do that are utopian now and press them and make them go better, like governance in Kerala or agriculture in Sikkim, um, all of these already existing attempts to do um, better with the biosphere. Uh, and, and well, the current capitalist world would be make them scale. But that formulation is wrong because scaling means scaling of profit, really. Um, so what you would want to say is, can we uh, move in those directions fast enough to dodge the, the, the catastrophe? And I, I take a lot of encouragement from the, the, the successes of these already existing utopian systems that have been there all along. They're a little small, but they, um, and the more we tell their stories and the more attention we pay to them, the more they might influence young people. Capitalist realism, this, this uh, ideological mindset that we're trapped in now, and especially young people who are paying only attention to the internet and they're in the precariat, they're scrambling, their parents are middle-class, they're seeing their, their uh, possibility for a, a, a good future going down into ecological collapse and hierarchical, you know, rich get richer, poor get poorer. I mean, the precariat is a real thing. 
but capitalist realism, like it couldn't possibly be different from this. This is the way people are. This is the, we can never escape this. That's a delusion. Um, the situation's brittle and fragile. It could change. And it's going to change because it can't sustain the way it is. So with an inevitable change coming, it would be nice to um, educate oneself, grab some hope, do some work, put your shoulder to the wheel, admit that it's going to be messy, but that a good outcome could still happen. And this is the utopia for our time. It's just a name for a process. There's never going to be an end at least not in this century or in our lifetimes. There's not going to come an end to this struggle. It's going to go on and on and on. I would presume for um, centuries more. But if the if there were successes, we might scaffold up to a state where things could get pretty damned good. And this would be seen as an emergency century that we that we finessed. Mm. So that's about a that's that's sort of a description of my hopes for things. Yeah, that's a great place to end. I, I appreciate spending the the last two hours with you, Stan. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. I uh, I love Ursula, and uh, she's been so important in my life. I've been enjoying your other episodes. She is a um, she was a a powerful uh, force, a, a character, a great person. But also, she's left behind a written record that is rich, that we can discuss for a long time. And so, I'm glad you're doing it. We've been talking today to Kim Stanley Robinson. You've been listening to Crafting with Ursula. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Kim Stanley Robinson's work can be found at kimstanleyrobinson.info. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin herself to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Ted Chang to N.K. Jemison, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner, Tin House's Jacob Valla for the graphic design, Becky Kramer for publicity, and Theo Downs Le Guin for his guidance, insight, encouragement, and for helping flesh out a Le Guin resource library for me at home. Finally, the music you hear called River Song and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Keshe. 
Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula.